I want people to understand just if you would place yourself in the United States and just think for a second if a group of several thousand individuals heavily armed, and I'm talking about highly sophisticated weaponry, intelligence, armored vehicles, and equipment took over 40% of, of the United States, physical control of 40%. That means, let's say, a group took over Washington, D.C., not the police and not the government. It was this group of armed men that work in extortion, murder, kidnapping, drugs, and human trafficking. That's what they do. Well, that's what's exactly what's happening in Mexico. But they're headquartered in Mexico. The effects and the ripple effects affects us here in the United States. That's the big issue with the cartels. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it is just me once more. Nick is busy making all the things that need to happen for American Moment to actually do stuff happen. Um, if it was left up to me, I would simply be ranting in a padded cell somewhere. So thank him for everything he does for our organization. This week, we have a fantastic episode on a very timely issue, immigration. I was actually down at the border uh, when Title 42 was rescinded, met with families that experienced the violence and total anarchy down there, met with border patrol agents, met with local law enforcement. It is an absolute nightmare. And one of the fantastic people I met while I was down there was a gentleman by the name of Victor Avila, who we had on for the episode today. Uh, Mr. Victor Avila is a retired supervisory special agent with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, and under the United States Department of Homeland Security, DHS. Uh, he experienced real tragedy at the hands of the cartels. He uh, was on official assignment in Mexico and suffered multiple gunshot wounds a couple of years ago, but survived that violent ambush. But unfortunately, his partner, special agent, uh, Jamie Zapata tragically lost her life. That was at the hands of the Mexican Los Cetas drug cartel. And we talk about that. We talk about all sorts of things on this episode. He's actually running for Congress right now. We're a 501c3, so we do not endorse candidates. So this episode should not be seen as either an endorsement or, or disapproval of his candidacy. Rather, we wanted to just talk to someone who's experienced up close the consequences of our failed immigration policy, someone who's was in the business of trying to help enforce our immigration policy and all the pressures that exist to prevent him from doing that. He goes into what the five different cartels are and what their interests are, why Title 42 is actually not all that it was cracked up to be, why Remain in Mexico was what it was cracked up to be, his experience both on the U.S. side of the border and the Mexican side of the border, and what Congress can do to maybe be a little bit more useful on this. Um, it was fantastic. Victor's a charming man and knows a ton about this issue, clearly cares about it. We even talked briefly about sort of the culture of being immigrants and what it means to us to be American, to become American, and the criticism that we sometimes get from the people we're closest to on deciding to do that. He's a he's a fantastic guy. Um, and again, we're 501c3. This should not be seen as an endorsement or anything, but I think it's an informative discussion that goes to so many of the public policy issues that American Moment cares most about. Um, we'll go now to Mr. Victor Avila. Victor, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We always like to hear our guest story, and in your case, uh, maybe more so than anyone, your your story is so much to do with your policy positions and what got you interested in politics to begin with. Why don't you tell us the tale of, of how you first got involved with defending the country and, and what your experience since then has been? 
Well, it started, uh, my law enforcement career started at the age of 22. Uh, I've worked at, at all levels of government uh, in Texas, at the county level, state level, and obviously as a federal level and even international level as a U.S. diplomat. Um, I, I worked as a for the United States courts, which kind of ironic that I was just in the court system and reminded me of all uh, of my my ex job that I had. But when I was a federal probation officer, I used to interview a lot of these agents to conduct the pre-sentence investi- investigation reports. And I really realized I want to do this. I want to be that agent on the street. And I did. I, I applied, um, became a U.S. Customs Special Agent that merged into what people know as ICE under the Department of Homeland Security had just been created. And so I went through the growing pains of a new agency. Uh, I have a bunch of badges to to show it. I have a U.S. Customs uh, Department of Treasury badge, an ICE Special Agent badge, and then I retired with an HSI Special Agent badge. So and what's uh, HSI? Uh, Homeland Security Investigations. Gotcha. Which, um, so people understand, it's it's an agency that has the jurisdiction to investigate anything that has a nexus to our U.S. border. Mm-hmm. All, all smuggling of goods and people, um, uh, commercial fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, also deal a lot with money laundering investigations, the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, human trafficking and such. And so um, my career in, in Texas was, uh, the aspiration was to become a federal agent. And I did, and I was fortunate enough to be uh, assigned back to El Paso, Texas, which I'm uh, born and raised. And was very successful. Initially, it was narcotics, right? A lot of narcotics, a lot of drugs, investigations, and then eventually my career moved over to the human smuggling, human trafficking, which when I got moved, I didn't really want to do that and because uh, I really didn't understand that type of investigation, but I eventually became um, a subject matter expert in human trafficking investigations, and I led the El Paso field office and task force there uh, conducting these uh, investigations, which then led my career into other things, um, money laundering, financial investigations, and then my career shifted over to working on the other side of the border in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And what time frame, years-wise, was all of this? Oh my goodness! Uh, well, the beginning was at the age of twenty-two. I became an agent at the age of thirty-two, mm-hmm. um, and I worked uh, from the age of thirty-two until two thousand fifteen, and so. Um, that's like 12 years with mm-hmm. ICE alone. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because it feels like the question of border enforcement, of immigration, of law enforcement in general, you lived through many eras of that, you know, pre-global war on terror, then, uh, you know, post-creation of DHS, and then into an era where Democrats made it very clear they had no intention of enforcing the law, DACA, um, Trump era. Like, you, mm-hmm. you've seen all of it. And I'm just curious, zooming out, what has been the the broad thematic understanding that you've developed of what's happened to our southern border and our law enforcement surrounding immigration? Uh, it's it's been a lack of enforcement of our existing laws. Um, a lot of people think it's a a magic wand that that you need or new legislation. Actually, you don't. Um, uh, I I know the laws. I've I've enforced them. Um, now it's a complete lawlessness uh, and, and disregard for our, our laws that exist. And I'm not talking just about immigration law, but there's a lot of other laws that are being ignored by this administration, even laws as child, endang- child endangerment laws or asylum criteria criteria that we, we provided for our own guidance is completely ignored. We're using existing laws like the parole system uh, and warping that in in uh, allowing people to come into this uh, country illegally 
through these policies. And so I want people to understand that it's it's not the law that they're following. It's their policies that they have implemented, that they have invented, if you will. They have created out of thin air, but not for the benefit of the U.S. citizen, for the benefit of anyone that is not. Mm-hmm. And that's what I fight for. I want people to come to this country legally. I'm a product of that. I'm a product of legal immigration. My parents came to the country legally, but they did something very special. Or, they have, uh, or as long as I see it is that this administration thinks it's very special, but my parents assimilated to this country. I wrote a book and I wrote that word in there on purpose because that's something that I see now lacking in people wanting to be Americans. Now, one thing is to want to come into and be in the United States. Another thing is to actually um, acclimate and assimilate to our culture. And yes, we do have a culture. And, and, and my parents were successful in doing that, which meant that their kids were successful in doing that. And that means hard work. That means God. That means family. That means country. That means being a good community member. It doesn't mean committing crimes <laughs> uh, or being a, a public charge mm-hmm. to the government. And and so um, I, I want that to happen legally. But what's happening now is complete lawlessness and really, I think, a threat to our sovereignty. Why did those systems of lax law enforcement start to happen you know, I, I tend to find in, in D.C., the more you learn about public policy, the more you realize that just as often laziness and incompetence is explanatory as active malice. Usually it's all three. I mean, what, what is the death by a thousand cuts process by which our laws started to be enforced less and less? One of the words that I use a lot is uh, is ideology. Mm-hmm. And it really is uh, the left's ideology. A lot of people ask me the, the question as to why. Well, um, there's different agendas and ideologies, political agendas, but also ultimately the bigger picture is um, the open border ideology, the uh, globalist ideology. We will allow allow every, anyone to come in without any restriction um, because somehow it's that's good in nature to do. But just the other way around, if you look at it trying to do it on the other way to another country, uh, they don't permit that. And but somehow the burden has been placed on the United States, the country and our government and a lot of our local governments to uh, accept this. And I want that burden shifted back to the countries of where the people are coming from. They need to be responsible and held accountable for their citizens. I mean, right now we're dealing with uh, even with deportations that they won't these countries won't even take their own citizens back. And this is because our our own administration hasn't dealt with that correctly. And so I think they they definitely, um, yes, one of the answers might be votes. They want to change the uh, the population standards and maybe get more representatives. I mean, 7 million people makes a big difference. And it changes the number of reps you get in, in these districts, right? But also, I think ultimately they, they're changing the fabric of our country. I think the, the, the amount of people coming in here with their own ideology and bringing their country here and so i think it's a i think it's a mistake in allowing uh individuals to come undocumented but yet they don't want to be here they want their country here they want their country with um as broken as those countries might be but they still want to hold on to those values that Mm -hmm. we understand that sometimes those values are the reason why they left in the first place Mm -hmm. And yet they don't want to assimilate to the U.S. standards. And now we have this clash. And at one point, something's got to give. You know, as an immigrant myself, one thing that uh, resonated about the way you described what your family desired 
um, is the distinction between people who want to be a part of the country that they are in now versus people who want to bring over the country that they came from. Um, it sounds like from a young age, both your parents and yourself wanted to be the former. Was there a, a social dynamic growing up in, in El Paso where you were looked down upon because you wanted to be more American to um, assimilate fully into the country? Was that was there was there a social distinction between the kind of kids and families that wanted to do that versus the people who, you know, didn't really care or respect about uh, respect America's culture? I love that question. I love that question. I'm going to tell you why. You know who who were the ones that fit, made me feel that way is my own family really? on the Mexican side. And so we always had the challenge of having to speak better Spanish because I'm not a native Spanish speaker. Mm -hmm. I'm not a native English speaker. <laughs> and so I had to prove myself to the Mexicans how Mexican I was and prove to the Americans how American I am. Yeah. And so, yes, as my own cousins, not all of them, but certain, definitely felt that every time I would go there for the summers. And um, because I spoke English, because I lived in the United States, because I was American, there was this stigma. And uh, I love that question because I think I felt that even in my career as a U.S. diplomat in Mexico, they don't like us. They don't like us. They don't like Mexicans do. And I'm talking. About, and I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the government here. Mm -hmm. There's this. There's this cultural barrier, especially when you're Hispanic or of Mexican descent. I'm sure it happens for others of uh, other descents. But absolutely, that 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 was that challenge. Not not within the U.S. Not in El Paso. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, my dad didn't want us here to uh, hearing us speak Spanish. Uh, he just wanted, why don't you speak English? He he knew the importance of speaking proper English and doing getting good grades and all that. And so uh, it was in, really emphasized on us on this side. But it, it was the the backlash was from the the Mexican national family members that I had. Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned the different elements of of your career, and I think one thing that can sometimes easily get glossed over in D.C. is is all these different components of our law enforcement system, especially at the border. Can you describe the distinction between the different roles that you've had over the course of your career, and sort of uh, maybe give us just a glossary of you know what's an agent, what's border patrol, what's ICE, you know what 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 is the individual role that all of these different entities and agencies play uh, uh, in the people within them. Yeah, I work for the U.S. court, so that's a whole different. That's the other side of the criminal justice system. A lot of the agents don't, don't uh, and, and investigators don't realize that when you slap cuffs on someone, that's just the beginning of a whole other system. That um, I had the preview and the advantage of having that work that system, and I'm talking about the prosecutors and defense counsels and motions and all that. Um, that really made me, I think, a better interrogator, better investigator because I knew what was coming in the courts, but. Um, under the Department of Homeland Security, it's it's a huge agency, right? And it's, think of it as this huge umbrella. Mm -hmm. And you have all these agencies. You have Secret Service. You have CBP, Border Patrol. You have uh, ICE um, and all these agencies. Well, they all have their individual roles. Uh, a lot of agents to this day disagree in what those roles, the way they were issued after the merger happened. Mm -hmm. But the way it is, is CBP, Customs and Border Protection, you have two divisions. You have the what they call OFO, Office of Field Operations, which are the customs people in blue at the ports of entry and, and airports. And then you have Border Patrol in green. Border Patrol, because of their union, kept their name. They're, they're all part of CBP, but the separate name, separate identity because of the green uniform, they brought that over. They are the interdictors. 
They are the patrolmen. Think of the patrolman on the street, the police officer, and they pull somebody over and they interdict. Mm-hmm. And when there's a case, who do they call? They call a detective. Mm-hmm. Well, HSI or ICE, um, special agents, respond to those cases and take take over those cases and and uh, initiate an investigation, whether it's human smuggling, a drug case, human trafficking, anything, commercial fraud. Um, and so... Uh, we work together that way. Um, ICE, on its own, has a separate division. The one that you probably hear about the most on the news is the deportations, the detention facilities. That's ICE Enforcement Removal Operations, or ERO. They are the enforcement of uh, of illegal alien, alien activity within the United States. They're the ones that uh, will repatriate the illegals back on airplanes. They're supposed to be looking for gang members and all that. That's one of the divisions right now that's been basically abolished yeah. by this administration by not giving them any funding. Um, so that's a great question because what's happening now, a lot of people put all their effort and focus on Border Patrol. But Border Patrol is just the receiver, the initial receiver of, and, and interdictor of these people. They then have to pass them on to many different entities. USCIS is another one. ICERO, Health and Human Services, uh, Office of Refugee and Resettlement. And so you never hear about them in the news. You never get that information. But they're, uh, they need more funding. They need more personnel. They need more bed space. And that's why you see a lot of these uh, undocumented people being released to the streets because there's nowhere to put them. Mm -hmm. See, that's so interesting because we tend to think a lot about um, the process, the unsexy stuff, the things that people don't pay attention to. And I think you you used the word earlier, and it's, it's one that I've started using recently as well, which is people tend to think that sometimes public policy is like a magic wand. You pass a bill and the world changes. No, it's not. There is an entire set of follow through actions that need to happen you can have the best laws in the world on the books and we in many cases do but it's the actual way that these laws are enforced that changes it what kind of person typically becomes a staffer in one of these agencies in one of these roles because i feel like you know it's it's the specific bias that i have because of the kind of events that i go to and everything mm-hmm. but every person I meet that works for Border Patrol uh, or ICE is, is someone like yourself, patriotic, loves America, comes into this fight for the right reasons. Um, but what's your assessment of the broad personnel question in immigration enforcement? You have a, um, a big, broad and a diverse diverse <laughs> group, if you will. But believe it or not, you have a high, high percentage of Hispanic Americans. Yeah. There and, was an article about this a few days ago. I don't know if yeah, you saw this. I didn't but, see that, but, yeah, but so, I've always been aware that the, a lot of border, border Patrol and Border Agents are Hispanic in yeah. nature. And yes, they're patriotic. And you have both sides of the spectrum. I mean, one of my best friends is is a left-wing liberal nut, but we get along great. And we have these incredible discussions, even back in the academy. And sometimes those discussions ended up with maybe our voices being <laughs> raised to a different level. But um, but overall, they understand the mission of the United States. They're there to pursue a mission, which is very difficult to see right now, is not them not being allowed to do it. This is something that we took an oath. Remember, every uh, of these uh, agents swore to uh, on an oath to protect and defend the United States of America uh, against foreign and domestic uh, enemies. And so they're not being allowed to do it. And that's very demoralizing to you as a, just as an individual and a person and even as an American. Yeah. We talked briefly earlier about your trajectory through these various agencies, but there was a um, 
you know, singular event in your life that I think has, has significantly informed your story. Why don't you tell us about um, how you experienced up close and personally the, the violence and the tragedy of what happens at the border? Yeah, my, my uh, experience in Mexico, my career in Mexico started on the other side of the border in, uh, from El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez. And that was in 2008 when that city was the most dangerous city in the world, experiencing about 350 homicides a month. I mean, it's, it's, it was just death surrounding you by the cartels. And then my Ten people a day. Yeah, oh, it's incredible. Wow. And it, it was, um, you know, we ended up, my family and I, getting a permanent position as a U.S. diplomat in, in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. And it was the most I ever worked in my career. I was really busy working a lot and a lot of things besides the human trafficking and a lot of training. Our mission was to help the Mexican government with a, the merit initiative. A lot of money we were given. We mm-hmm. built the police force. We we did a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I saw that. I saw the money being spent there. And so a lot of it was training. A lot of it was just simple police tactics, uh, investigative techniques and, 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 and the such. But... Um, we went through a tragic event on February 15th of 2011 where uh, my partner, Jaime, Agent Jaime Sabata and I were sent on a on an assignment, a dubious assignment, if you will, that we I challenged because they sent us on a highway that we weren't supposed to be on. There was an alert not to be on that uh, by the ambassador. Nevertheless, we were ruled overruled to go and uh, we were ambushed. Whose error was that? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> um it was the error, and, and you said it earlier, incompetence, and there's a combination of incompetence and doing what you think, and when you don't know, uh, that's a deadly combination. In this case, it, it, it was because we were ambushed by Losetta's cartel, and my partner was shot and killed in the line of duty. I survived uh, being shot three times. I'm here by the grace of God. And uh, so, I, I've been through those decision makings. I've seen evil in its eyes, and I've seen the terrorism that these cartels have instilled not only in the country of Mexico but in our country with the fentanyl and the human trafficking and anything that we're, we're experiencing. But it was uh, obviously a very traumatic event that my family and I went through, um, and, and a lot of things happened. The aftermath probably was worse. Uh, two of the weapons used against us were uh, linked to Operation Fast and Furious. You remember that gun walking operation under the Obama Biden administration. And so we did, my family ended up getting the short end of the stick and uh, I ended up kind of a forced retirement and I took a medical retirement in 2015 um, because they didn't want me back. And like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I got shot, that's how I did. I was proud of being a federal employee. I was actually a very loyal federal employee, but then I, I, I found out so many other things later on. It didn't matter to the government what I did or didn't do. I could have arrested a thousand people or zero, and it made no difference. To me, it did, but to them, it didn't. And I never understood that. It, it really um, it really rubbed me the wrong way because you know you're here doing a mission where you're trying to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I did change a lot of lives. I rescued a lot of victims and women and children from human trafficking conditions and slavery conditions. Um, and that always made me feel good. But, you know, the job is surrounded by negative, um, um, uh, everyday negative uh, happenings that um, that's just the nature of the job and very stressful. So, so uh, you're saying that there there isn't a lot of ways that the, the federal government, these agencies reward agents that do exceptional jobs. 
No. Um, the 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 supervisors that made this decision that put us on the road, they were promoted. There's no accountability. Um, I ended up being without a career. My career basically ended. And so you're absolutely right. It, it's it's warped and uh, it makes no sense. So all my career, I always wonder why, why there's somebody in D.C., not like me, that understands what's going on, but someone that does not understand what's going on, but pretends to know. Mm -hmm. And a, when I worked for the courts, a U.S. district judge taught me how to say, I don't know. And it takes a lot. It takes a, a lot of courage sometimes to say, I don't know, because you're supposed to know. You're the you're the border security expert, you're the agent, or you're the surgeon, you're the doctor, you're the teacher, you're the banker. How, how dare you not know? Well, it's okay not to know. And it takes a lot of courage to say that. And I, my bosses in Mexico did not have that courage to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. No, you go based on what they think they know, and it had deadly consequences. When people talk about the cartels, it sometimes feels like they don't actually know what they're describing uh, because they're so alien and foreign to um, what normal middle class suburban people in the United States experience. What are the cartels? What, what, what are they culturally like? What's the What's the mentality of the people who join those organizations? And, and what exactly is the ugly truth of, of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis? They're highly sophisticated criminal networks. They're not drug gangs. They're not a group of people that hang out and got together and, hey, let's, let's do this. No, these are highly sophisticated. This isn't your neighborhood gang. No, these are not, not, not the corner <laughs> street gang pushing drugs. Yeah. These are highly sophisticated networks. Again, think of them. Uh, the cartels, we have five major cartels, but within those five major cartels, you have sub-cartels that work for the bigger cartel. Mm -hmm. Think of DHS and think of all these, right? Yeah. The same thing. And so uh, you have all these cartels spread out around the whole country of Mexico, and their motive is power and money, uh, corruption. They have a stronghold on the political system in Mexico, on the uh, police system, on the media. Uh, and a lot of other trades, the lime trade, the avocado trade, the petroleum trade, they have their hands in, in all these activities. And of course, narcotics, fentanyl, meth, and now human smuggling, human trafficking. When I investigated these people, they they were separate. They were drug cartels. That's all they did. They used to call them DTOs, drug trafficking organizations. That's no longer what they are. They're terrorists is what they are. Um, and so now they've they've taken over all of that illicit activity. Uh, I want people to understand just if you would place yourself in the United States and just think for a second if a group of several thousand individuals heavily armed, and I'm talking about highly sophisticated weaponry, intelligence, armored vehicles, and equipment took over 40% of, of the United States, physical control of 40%. That means, let's say a group took over Washington, D.C., not the police and not the government. It was this group of armed men that work in extortion, murder, kidnapping, drugs, and human trafficking. That's what they do. Well, that's what's exactly what's happening in Mexico. But they're headquartered in Mexico. The effects and the ripple effects affects us here in the United States. That's the big issue with the cartels. But here's the, the broader picture of the cartels. They're actually the soldiers. If you think about it, even though as highly sophisticated at networks that they are and and generate billions of dollars, they're actually working for China, working for Venezuela, working, working for Cuba. This is where the big national security threat 
that we face in this United States is because of the activities through the cartels, but through the bigger entities of that we know are are an imminent threat to our national security and our safety here. What are those five cartels uh, called? And then what is the sort of distinctions between how they operate? Are they competitive with each other? Do they fight against each other or are they sort of allied in their interests? How does that inter-competition work? So I'm going to name them for you and I'm going to kind of go from South Texas and the Brownsville area all on the Mexican side. You got the Gulf Cartel. And right now the Gulf Cartel is in a huge war with CDN. CDN is Cartel del Noreste or Cartel of the Northeast which is a faction of those Zetas, the ones that shot us. The factions were kind of dis- dismantled after the shooting. A lot of people went to prison in the hierarchy, and they factioned off to CDN. They could want to control from the Gulf all the way to like the Laredo, Texas area. Then you have the Cartel Jalisco New Generation. Cartel Jalisco New Generation is a very violent, very... Um, they, they faction off from another cartel as well. And uh, they're basically out of the Jalisco area, but now they all come towards the border and try to work in those court to get those corridors and, and smuggling routes. Then you have the Sinaloa cartel, which is probably between the cartel Jalisco new generation. I think the Sinaloa cartel is probably the most powerful one. Uh, even though they, we got these both entities earning billions of dollars, the Sinaloa cartels takes from parts of El Paso all the way till California. There was a big cartel back in the 90s that controlled most of it was the Juarez cartel. They have been really hurt and dismantled as well. And they also go by another name called La Linea or The Line. Uh, they're still there. They're still there fighting for their territory, but mostly it's those. It's the uh, Sinaloa, Gulf, Zeta, CDN, and uh, Gulf cartel. And so practically speaking, if you're someone who lives along the border um, and uh, on either side, either in Mexico or in the United States, what is someone, an ordinary citizen's daily experience with these cartels likely to be? On the U.S. side, I could tell you um, it's it, it's a way of life. You just know that they're there. Mm-hmm. You just know they're not, not necessarily fearing for your life in El Paso or McAllen, Texas, but they're there. They're there in the restaurants or they're at the bars. They're there shopping. They're there. They have houses. They live in the, a lot of them live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. or have dual houses and live both in Mexico and the U.S., because they conduct business on both sides of the border. Um, but they're, they're from there. They live there. The people are from there. They they haven't learned to deal with it. Now, on the Mexican side, is very different because the violence is there. They know that at any given moment, you can be caught up in a shooting. And this is where the cartels kill a lot of innocent people. They might want to come and kill both of us here, but if you know they come and shoot all of us, they don't care. They don't have no no, no uh, concern or for human life. They'll just take people out. Sometimes they'll do it intentionally and kill innocent people, dress them up as police officers, hang them from bridges, and call them um, rival cartel members to send messages to the other cartel. Do they fight amongst them? Absolutely. They're always fighting for territory, the plazas, they call it. They're always fighting for more money, more control. And and they have con- on the border, they've had the control for a long time, but they really run a, a parallel government in the U.S. And I'm sorry, in Mexico now, they have a huge influence in the whole in the whole country and especially the border. And, and a quick case that happened uh, a couple of months ago where uh, Americans, African-Americans went to uh, Matamoros on the other side of Brownsville and were shot and killed. And there was a video of them where the cartel shot them and then took the bodies and threw them in the back of a pickup truck. And uh, people were asking, what, what the heck is going on? 
Never did the police ever inter intervene. It was the cartel shot him. The cartel returned the bodies. The cartel caught the bad guys, mm -hmm. their own cartel member, and said these individuals are the ones responsible for killing these Americans. They put a notice uh, out apologizing, saying this is not the way we conduct business, and then put the, the individuals for the authorities to be arrested. And nowhere was the police, the federal government, or the Mexican authorities ever present in that. But I tell people that's a great example to see how the, the cartel is actually the ones that control all of it there. Yeah. What is it that you think people get most wrong about how the cartels actually work and how this system operates? They're underestimated. That case, there was another case recently of Americans traveling that were killed. They're under, underestimated with their intelligence um, network. They're under, underestimated with the money that they generate, and they're un, underestimated with the presence that they have in the United States and in 40 to 50 countries abroad. Mm -hmm. And on the Mexican side or, or in any of these foreign countries, I'll ask the same question, you know, is the government ideologically in support of the cartels? Are they corrupt? Are they incompetent? And the cartels are more competent than them, so they're taking over these roles. Um, what, what exactly is the breakdown there, you think? It's corruption. It's okay. definitely corruption. Um, and ideology in Mexico, the, the government, uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, socialist communist, he said from day one that he'd rather give the cartels hugs instead of bullets. <laughs> he, he, he said that he wasn't going to address it. And he never talks about it. And you have these huge incidents that happen in Mexico, huge, incredible violence. Um, I get the videos on a daily basis from my sources and shootouts and shootings and beheadings and crazy, crazy violence. But he doesn't want to talk about it. They ignore the elephant in the room. But he has given them full, full carte blanche to do whatever they want. That's why he doesn't worry about worry about his safety. He doesn't worry about his own personal security because nobody wants to kill him because he's allowing them to do whatever he wants. Well, guess who's doing that the same? This administration, the Biden administration, is allowing them with an open border system to do whatever they want. Well, now you've created, basically, be, between these two governments, these two administrations have created a monstrosity of a public safety issue and national security and imminent threat to our country that could easily be dealt with, but they've chosen not to purposefully. Yeah. There are two major policies that I think have been inflection points in the crisis at the border over the last five or six years. The first was the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy. The second has been Title 42. I want to take each of them individually. What was your experience with what happened at the southern border when the Remain in Mexico policy was fully implemented? Well, I happened to be there. I was there the week before, and I was there uh, the following week when it was lifted. Nothing. And I was one of the few people to say that 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 nothing was going to happen because Title 42 was in effect and had been in effect for the last over two years under this administration. So if Title 42 was in effect, that means zero people would have been allowed into this country illegally. Zero. But 7 million came in. But Title 42 was in effect. The most ever. So how in the world do you tell me that when Title 42 was going to be lifted, was, was it was going to be this huge difference? No, we've already been allowing them. It was, it, I know it was a big buzz and, the, and it, 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 here it comes. But I'll tell you one thing I was surprised. I was standing there and the gates were open, which is the most ironic thing that you have this big wall 
in El Paso, but they opened gate 40 and 42. And we were going back from one to the other, and the news medias were there, and we were expecting the rush. I had been briefed by uh, a Border Patrol agent just a couple of days. They had given me very specific indications of what was going to occur, and that didn't happen. So I had I thought, well, you know what? I don't even think the agents knew what this administration under Mallorca's was actually planned to do. And what they did, and they're doing as you and I speak today, is moving these people. They're sending the buses across the 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 wall, loading them up, and taking them to the port of entry and bringing them in as legally uh, processed I- illegals, <laughs> which the numbers immediately dropped. And that's what you're going to hear, the rhetoric. Oh, the numbers, look at Title 42 is gone, and the, and the numbers dropped significantly. The numbers did not drop significantly. You stopped counting them. That's why they dropped significantly. So I think it's even worse now. Now, because there's no political pressure, because I mean, that that site of people rushing through may have actually kicked Congress in the butt to do something. But now they can hide it. And they and even the chief of the Border Patrol said in El Paso, because it happened to be the Border Security Expo at the same time that they were not going to allow the building of 17000 people at once under a bridge or by the wall because they were going to avoid that that that, uh, you know, that optic. Mm -hmm. And sure enough. That they're not allowing it, but not everybody's going through a port of entry. Some are being bused to other parts of Texas, Del Rio, San Antonio. I was in San Antonio. The airport's full of illegal aliens, and some are being released to the streets. It was impossible to get a flight out of El Paso the days after Title Forty Two ended. That was affordable, and I'm guessing because they were loading up tons. Oh of yeah, people on I saw them. I, I well. flew. I flew out of there, and a um, bunch of illegals, a bunch of illegals, and and so. That Title 42 was a farce. But here's the thing about Title 42. You could have actually kept it and enforced it and because now everybody obviously was because of the pandemic and because of COVID. But what about scabies? What about lice? What about tuberculosis? What about flesh-eating bacteria? What about syphilis? What about chlamydia? And people are coming in What about chickenpox? Wow. There was an outbreak of that in El Paso. Well, that... If, if there's a Those Title 42 reason, yeah. you would think that we'll use that as... A, Those as are a, worse than COVID in some correct. cases. That's right. And yeah. guess where they're bringing it? To your neighborhood, to your kid's school. Because I've been saying it for years, you will be impacted in the school systems, in the healthcare systems, mm-hmm. and of course, the criminal justice system. The the, the uh, ho- um, hospitals in El Paso, overrun by illegals. In McAllen, overrun by illegals because they require a lot of care. Now, this is what this administration is doing. They're showing you a plane because I just saw a, 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 a video by one of the chief uh, sector chief, uh, Gloria Chavez, down in the Rio Grande Valley, standing in front of the airplane. Look, we're repatriating back and we're sending people back. They are. They're, they are deporting some people. They're deporting 5,000 people and allowing 900,000 in. <laughs> That's the part they don't tell you. So they'll show you. And it's proper. It's propaganda. Look, we are deporting. We are using Title Four. Title Eight is going to kick in. And we, we talked about this. What do you mean kick in? It's the law. It's always been the law. Yeah. DUI, the DUI laws don't kick in on and off, <laughs> right? A police officer, it's like, I gave this example and I thought, well, maybe this is a pretty good example. The mayor tells the chief of police to tell his patrolmen, you cannot no longer enforce DUI or driving while intoxicated laws. You have to, you will, you will pull him over and you will identify him as drunk, but you're going to have to let him go. So seven million of those. 
it's ridiculous, right? It's, it's stupid. Yeah. But this is what we're doing. Why is it? Why is it different? Because it's immigration. Why? Uh, you know how much death we've had at the southern border. Eighteen hundred people have died in the U.S. side alone. Just two in the last uh, what a week and a half uh, in the custody of the U.S. government. Um, and I'm talking about Americans, and I'm talking about illegals themselves are dying. They're drowning. They're being raped. They're, they've hung themselves by trees because they're disoriented. They've cooked to death by the sun in the desert in the, in the, desert, in the summer months. Uh, death, death, death. Rollovers. The smuggling. And they don't stop. They crash and bodies start flying. And then they crash into and kill U.S. Americans. I mean, this is what's happening on a daily, weekly basis along the border along the ranches the ranchers are 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 fed up the the communities are fed up now it's like you have no choice you will allow them in it doesn't matter how it impacts your community but you better deal with it and and you're seeing even sanctuary cities even pushing back now like chicago and new york and connecticut like wait a minute whoa, 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 whoa. we didn't ask for this no yes you did we've been telling you for a long time and this is what we've been feeling for years and now they don't like it because it costs money, resources. I mean, regardless of how you feel about immigration, these are human beings. Mm -hmm. And there's crime, there's health issues, there's schooling issues, there's all these issues. Uh, shelter that all of a sudden you have to deal with. Yeah. What about Remain in Mexico? Was that real? And oh, my goodness. That was probably one of the best policies that came under the Biden administration and, and Tom Holman, who was a big Trump administration. I'm sorry, uh, Trump. Did I say Trump? Did I say <laughs> you, Obama? Said, you said Biden. Heck, heck no. It was under Trump. It was under the Trump. Sorry. Um, it was under the Trump administration under uh, Tom Holman's direction. Yeah. Uh, Remain in Mexico was um, because this is what we're saying. The asylum, we, I, I touched on it earlier. The asylum criteria is the same. You have to prove to our government that you have credible fear from returning back to your home country because you're being persecuted by that government mm -hmm. for your uh, uh, membership in a certain group, your religion, your sex, all that. Most of these people don't qualify under our own criteria uh, because Guatemala has a lot of violence and because somebody killed your father or your brother, and what, that doesn't qualify you. We have a lot of violence here too. And so the Remain in Mexico policy was a good one because it said, okay, we're going to give you the benefit of doubt. If you really believe that you qualify for asylum, wait there and we'll process you. Because most of these people are not from Mexico. They're not from Mexico. As a matter of fact, they're illegally present in Mexico and Mexico won't do anything about it. And don't even get me started on Mexico's role on this. This is something that I would want to change in office that uh, Mexico has a huge responsibility to do something mm -hmm. about here. Also under the Trump administration, what did he do? He, he told um, President Trump, told the government of Mexico. I'm going to start putting some tariffs on you. I'm going to designate the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. I'm going to do this, this. And Mexico didn't like that. Immediately, he got them to react and start securing their border. We have to go back. And I and I and now it's beyond tariffs. I think we need sanctions. Mm -hmm. I think we, you know, we have a, this multi-billion dollar trade that no one wants to deal with because some of the things that are in here probably came through that southern border. Mm -hmm. But we have to protect our country. Yeah. We could do both. Yeah. We could have a border, a secure border and allow trade to come in. And but but they don't want to they don't want to deal when it comes to possibly hurting one or the other. Yeah. So let's talk about Congress and where they've been asleep at the wheel. 
I want to hear your your broad critique of Congress, and then I want to hear where you think Republicans specifically have been asleep at the wheel. Well, um, the Democrats don't seem to recognize, first of all, that we have a border. So that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's the big one, yeah. right? Um, just this past week, we passed the, the Border Security Act, and not one Democrat voted for it. But what does that tell me? I actually believe, and I, I believe this in my heart, that national security and public safety doesn't matter what what side of the aisle you're on. It, no, the cartels don't care. The guy in the street committing crimes is not going to ask you if you're a Democrat or Republican before he commits the crime. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the policy and the votes that you implement in this town. And we can't seem to break that barrier because of ideology, because it's racist, because uh, because a bad orange man. I mean, out of spite, really? Is it because the policies were so good that we're not going to give him a win even though he's not in office? I mean, really, this is where we're at. It, it, it's so divisive that I think it really is not that big of a divisive issue. Fentanyl is killed over 100. I think the numbers just came out for last year was 109,000. And by the way, those numbers are going to go up because uh, the numbers that are counted, they're backlogged like nine months. Wow. And they're going to go up. So we have hundreds of thousands, over 200,000 in the last two years dead by counterfeit pills through the cartels, through China, and no one blinks an eye. That's three 9-11s a month that we're suffering here, attacks. But the attacks don't happen to be with bullets. They happen to be with this counterfeit pill, but death is death. And yet the Democrats don't want to recognize that. And as a matter of fact, following up on your question, some of the Republicans don't want either. They seem to think that it's uh, because Mexico happens to be next to us. Oh, if it's in Ukraine, send them money. <laughs> if, it's in, uh, if it's in the Middle East, if it's 6,000 miles away, go to war. Yeah. It's right here, attached to us at the hip. What better reason? Now, it's a bad, Mexico is being a bad neighbor right now. And I already told you, they don't like us. They don't like us. They don't, they don't want our way of life, they, the, the government. They've already threatened our government. Don't you dare intervene with military. We're a sovereign nation, da, 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 da. What about our sovereignty? What about our protection? What about our constitution? It's been disrespected not only by this administration, but of that of 150 countries abroad. They're China, my goodness. Now they're sending people across, balloons, people. They're buying our land in Texas, 140,000 acres in Del Rio, Texas, uh, ne next to Laughlin Air Force Base, 140,000 acres, and they're gonna put um, windmills up there, or whatever they call them, it, they're taking over. And this is a protection that I think that you have to really look on both sides of the aisle and recognize, listen, these are real threats. This is the bigger picture of the cartels and China and and, and the takeover. And look at the, the, the Chinese police stations that we already discovered, one in Houston, Texas, and one in New York. What do you mean, Chinese police stations? <laughs> yeah, they're here. Yeah, they're here. They're watching us, mm -hmm. and uh, we need people to understand the real problem so they could act accordingly with their votes in the House of Congress. So, what is the the path out of this? Right. So, uh, I'll ask the question in two ways. One, what could an effective uh, Republican Congress um, or you know, conservative, sensible Congress uh, under a Biden administration do? Um, on its own? And then what do you think the next conservative president needs to do uh, uh, 
on on his behalf? So that's a great question because I actually saw it happen, and this is where I'll give praise to Congress, and that's why we're in this in a good position with the debt ceiling negotiations right now because Congress stepped up and passed HR two last mm-hmm. week, which is the Border Security Act. Now it's not as strong as HR twenty nine, which is Chip Roy's bill, which I happened to review. Um, hey, but we came together, we got the votes, and we passed it. It's a huge indicator, huge indicator about what what the Republicans and conservatives want for this country. I mean, you can't ignore border security. I mean, that's the reason a lot of these individuals ran on, right? And so now we're giving them the the uh, the tools to do it. Laws, to me, it's kind of funny. We're passing laws, like HR, uh, or at least pass it in the House, to enforce our laws. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no, we mean it. <laughs> that's yeah, like, no, 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 you, you are going to... Get rid of remain in Mexico. I mean, a uh, uh, catch and release policy. Wait a minute, that, that's a policy, but we need a law to tell us to yeah. do that. But this is the pressure that we have to continue to put on the Biden administration. Uh, like I told you, not even one Democrat voted for it. Um, but uh, moving forward, I think um, I think I see the Republicans um, at least coming together when it when it when it mattered. Um, there's a lot more to do there, and there's a big division between kind of the grassroots efforts mm-hmm. and the others. Uh, and with the members, but I think the overall picture is we send a message. We send a message to the Biden administration saying, now you have to act. Mm-hmm. Well, they asked us to act. They they bluffed us to act, mm-hmm. and then we did. And now they're wondering, oh, what, what do we do? Because now the ball is completely in the Democrats' court right now, and they're, they're shuffling. They don't know what to do. You spend a lot of time with the grassroots um, in places along the border. What do they want? Like what, what, what is it that you hear over and over that clearly doesn't often break through into this town? Very simple. They want true representation. I mean, fundamentally, they want the person that they voted for to vote consistently with what they asked for. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's not what they're getting with a lot of these incumbents. I mean, the incumbent will say one thing and will tell the, the constituents to their face what they want to hear. And then come to this town and vote completely the opposite mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Nobody knows why. Special interests, money, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. But that's what they're doing. And so they feel betrayed by their vote. They feel um, uh, uh, taking advantage of, like, wait a minute, this is not the way it's supposed to be. They want the representative to be the voice for them here in D.C. In D.C. You're running for Congress, and we're a 501c3, but um, I, I, I think it is an interesting question. You know, With the experience that you have inside the system, what is it that you think even well-meaning conservative members of Congress um, are behind the, uh, the, the ball on or, or behind the curve on um, because they don't fully understand the intricacies and, and the people in this town who work at these agencies come and spin them one story, but you're much more familiar with, with the real story on the ground. Where are some areas where you think those discrepancies might give you an advantage if you were elected? Um, the big advantage is, um, is my actual experience on the ground. It's real. Um, I, I bring, I would bring a, a very, uh, thorough, um, a picture of what I've actually known and seen because not just because I retired, uh, mean, means that I'm not in touch with it. As a matter of fact, I'm in touch with it on a daily basis, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to the border. But I, I'm really, um, I would be a person that would be able to talk 
very intelligently about certain things in this town that I think lacks. Uh, I think we have uh, a lot of good representat- representatives, but I, uh, a lot of from military backgrounds, but not one like me that actually went up the ranks in the federal government that had, from the ground up uh, worked my way up in different positions, uh, got to deal in negotiations for the government in representing my country. And I think that's a, a very, very uh, uh, unique skill that a lot of people don't have. I mean, you talk about, I, I see the questions and the uh, these committees that they have. And I mean, interrogations is my specialty, right? <laughs> I'd, lo- I'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, yeah, like how, the house. How would you question my orcas? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, well, I just need to impeach him. I don't even want to question him anymore. Yeah. He needs to be impeached. But um, I think I, I would bring that real world. Uh, well, I'm a criminal investigator, right? By nature, that's what I that's what I did all my life, and so I would really bring that and to light. And I think sometimes that scares people. They're like, "Oh, wait a minute, we're gonna get a cop in here." That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. They I should I, be scared. And, and and I would investigate, and I would. Uh, um, to me, it's a job. I see. I really see this as a job. It just happens to be elected by the people and given to you by the people. And I'm okay with that, and that's what I'm asking for. Give me the job. Uh, let me do the best that I can. I will represent the people firsthand. And like I said, I'll go back to fundamentals. I'm going to give the power back to the people. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do what they want. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm not going to do what the party wants. I want to do what the my responsibility is to them. But I also have the understanding. I'm not an idiot here. I understand the implications of CD23 down at the border of it has in the whole country. Yes, my whole interest is the whole country as well. I think we need to help save it. I want to help save it. And so I bring that big picture as well. And that uh, my experience as a diplomat abroad in Europe and in Mexico has really given me that um, those negotiation skills when you really represent your government in another place outside you you really quickly realize the interest of putting America first. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where we've been lacking. And so part of your second question is if if a different uh, um, party would come into play, well, it would it would immediately change everything. You get people elected like me and and it's staff and positions that would be filled by true patriots. It's going to change the dynamics of not just this town, but of this country. And you will see it actually even better than when it was before. Uh, because, um, I mean, I, I can use this example of uh, President Trump was there. He wasn't a politician. But, oh boy, he quickly learned, right? I, I'm, I'm that type that if you put me somewhere and you teach me a new game, and I'm going to learn that game. And eventually, I'm going to be pretty good at that game. And eventually, I might beat you at that game. Um, <laughs> that's just my nature. I, I, uh, I've been underestimated a lot in my life, and I'm okay with that. You, you keep on under, underestimating me because I really want uh, to bring this thing called integrity back to these positions. I think we're lacking that. I think we need honesty. I think we need transparency. And I just ask people, put me there. Let me do the job. Let me do the best that I can. And if you see that I didn't, then that's why we have this process of election. Victor, how can people read more about your story, tell them about your book, and where can they follow you on social media? Yes. Uh, well, the first of all, I'm going to send you is go to victoravilaforcongress.com. Yeah. Uh, go there, and uh, your uh, your contributions are always welcomed. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram as Victor Avila TX or Victor Avila Jr. And um, you could also grab a copy of my book, Agent Under Fire, 
agentunderfirebook.com. That book, you will get an incredible um, raw. Uh, you're going to go through emotions when you read that book because you'll see, you'll learn a lot about me. You'll you, you'll feel you, you know me. Plus, it gives you a very uh, explicit detail about the ambush in, in Mexico. But what I did at the end of that book is write about border security, about what I knew, because I lost a little bit of my identity. I said, I'm going to write about what I know. And so I wrote about the wall, sanctuary cities, asylum, uh, designating the cartels as FTOs. All this is in there, and you'll get a good grasp. You think I wrote that book yesterday based on what's going on today. It's aged well. Thank you, Victor, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation. We certainly enjoyed having Victor in the studio with us here today. As always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast, some hundred and gajillion episodes long at this point. If you're really motivated by listening to my voice every waking moment of the day, we can enable that here at American Moment. We exist to serve. Um, be sure to go to the website to find everything else that we have cooking. You can find Amcanon, which is our assemblage of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and more structured by different issue areas to help people think through these issues. There's a bunch of new interns in DC. I know that many of you are listening to the podcast. If you want to sound smarter than all of your other interns, and frankly, half of the LCs and LAs on the Hill, be sure to read through Amcanon and listen to the backlog of this podcast. You can keep an eye out for programming that we have upcoming um, uh, for new foundations programs and potentially other things. Our new fellows just started, but hopefully I can go find a couple million more dollars and we can do um, fellowships in not just the summer in the coming months and years. And uh, as always, be sure to rate and review this podcast five stars only. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube. And we've actually started posting the entire episodes on Twitter now. Uh, Got to do what Papa Elon tells us to. And so be sure to retweet and like uh, that you can find us at ammoment.org on that and every other social media platform. Thank you guys as always for listening, and we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.